Hello and welcome to the 2019 Hoover Institution Palm Beach Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is John H. Cochran, the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Partisanship and Policy, an Economics Perspective, and it was recorded on March 20th, 2019. And thank you all for, uh, for being here. Um, I'm going to talk about economics and politics. Um, and in, in part, uh, back up a little bit, um, I love these events because there's nothing like uh, I have to sit in front of a group of very smart people and say something intelligent, or apparently so, and it, it forces me to, to really put my own thoughts together that I might not otherwise do. And then I often get challenged and I, I learn something about the whole. See, it's great to talk in front of a friendly audience, sort of, sort of friendly, uh, and refine your ideas a bit before um, your enemies find out about them. And this is a project I've been thinking about for a long time. Why are we so politically polarized? What does an economist have to say about where our country is going uh, politically? Uh, which will eventually become maybe a defining ideas essay or something, or maybe something grander. We'll see. Uh, I love these events to, to think out loud with you. Uh, and thank you for showing up and participating. So uh, I'm going to ask two questions. Uh, the first, I'm going to take an economist's look at political polarization. Uh, obviously, we're getting more and more politically polarized. What's going on? Everyone blames Twitter or something else. Usually the other side, uh, well, they started at first. You know, what the, the kindergarten excuse to polarization, Timmy did it first. But as an economist, I, I, I look at choices. Why are people choosing to be so polarized? I don't think people have changed, but I think the game has changed and people are choosing uh, a different strategy. And as I look at that, uh, I see an increasingly winner-take-all political system in which it's perfectly rational to be more polarized. And that leads us to think a little bit about how can we change the rules of the game to a, a better outcome. And second, uh, we have a slate uh, leading from that of economic proposals and political proposals uh, from the uh, Democratic side of the presidential, upcoming presidential election. The wealth tax, the 70% federal income tax on top of all the other taxes you pay. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's uh, desires to control what corporations do. They, and, and on top of it all, the great Green New Deal. I, I put this in a way that may be not for good for public consumption. Why are people choosing such loony economic policies? Uh, and and I, the answer I come to is, is power, which, which leads to bad news for polarization. Okay, that's where we're going. Um, where are we now? Whoops, I don't want to show you that yet. Uh, <laughs> always hold off on the numbers until they're, you know, fully asleep is a good rule of lecturing. Uh, now, when we think about polarization, I, I, I as an economist especially, I think about actions, not words. Uh, the, the early years of the Republic were pretty polarized too. It's not about Twitter. Uh, uh, Adams and uh, Jefferson managed to do to each other with pamphlets uh, what we can do now with Twitter. Uh, but what are the actions that count for polarization? And here I see uh, what, what really concerns me and what I think is the, the main symptom is the loss of norms. Our republic works not just on legal limitations, do everything you can up to the law, limits of the law, but on norms, on standards of behavior where you don't do everything you legally can do right now on this issue. Uh, don't bring a gun to a knife fight is a nice norm. 
Uh, do unto them as they surely will do unto you when they're in power is a good uh, way of thinking about it. Why? Our legal limitations, we, we cannot be just do everything you can legally. Our legal limitations must be vague. And to take one in, in recent uh, news, um, national security or national emergency powers uh, of the president, that has to be vague. We can't write down ex ante, you must do exactly, you may do exactly this, you may not do that if you declare a national emergency. Because the whole point of national emergency is we don't know exactly what's going on. So we count on a fairly loose grant of power that is then exercised judiciously, subject to norms. You don't use it unless there really is a national emergency of the sort. Furthermore, if, if we rely only on legal limitations of power, then everything goes to the courts as everything is going to the courts now. Then the courts become more politicized. Then picking the justices becomes more and more of a vital activity. And, and, the, and the polarization uh, in, increases. We're heading more towards a, a winner-take-all system and that the, the key to our constitutional republic is the protection uh, of minority rights. When you lose an election, uh, you still can slow things down a little bit. If something's really important to you, you have the right to stop it. And therefore, you can afford to lose an election, play by the rules, and, and come back next time. If you lose the minority rights, then it becomes winner-take-all. And, and then the, the fight, then, then polarization really matters. So I see norms uh, crumbling. And, and let me offer a trigger warning from the Stanford campus, so we have to do this. Uh, to, to, to both sides, there's, there's no safe space, sorry. Uh, I wanna be, I wanna phrase this in a uh, bipartisan or way, so I, I also think most of the damage comes from the left, but we'll keep that quiet. Uh, we have to recognize that both sides are, are playing this game. And it goes back a long way. Norms have been falling apart since Johnson and Vietnam, really, and then gotten worse and worse uh, over time. So what are what some sort of Emily Post's rules of good political behavior uh, that are, are more and more violated? You don't question the legitimacy of an election. Once it's done, it's done. You lick your wounds, go back and try again next time. To, for, for all his various sins, uh, Richard Nixon in 1960 arguably had that election stolen from him. Uh, Richard Daley and the Democratic machine in Chicago came through at the last moment. Did he run? Did he complain? Did he ask for a recount? No. Richard Nixon said, and I said, uh, it is not in the nation's interest to question this. I'll accept the loss. And, and I, you know, all of us are of a certain age where we can remember the 1960s. That was pretty painful for Richard Nixon. Uh, can you imagine anyone doing that today? <laughs> uh, in the era of the hanging Chad, the birthers, uh, and, and then the insanity that has gone on since the last uh, election. Um, we don't, Emily Post rule number two, we don't use impeachment as a constant drumbeat or to settle policy differences or as a constant political tool. It's, some, it's a once in a century break the glass in case of fire for extreme uh, problems. Another rule, we don't have a constant special prosecutor and constant investigations. I don't understand why there was no deadline on the special prosecutor, why they never have a deadline. But we are now heading in, a special prosecutor is, is a once every 50 years. 
something awful happened, not just a tool of regular partisan uh, debate o over policy. Uh, campaign finance in particular has become a, a tool in, in, this, uh, in this destructive effort. Um, you know, no, no, a hundred years ago, nobody would have been investigating that the idea that a, a president allegedly paying off a porn star because he was embarrassed about something, that this would be, that that's not illegal. It's, it would be only illegal if it was conspiracy to obstruct justice as a violation of campaign finance law because this was only to improve the election. You've got to be kidding. Uh, well, that, that's, the, that's where we are. And now you can look forward to every president, every member of, a, of an administration will be constantly investigated for whatever's in their high school yearbook. You don't persecute losers. This is really important. And of the destructive things, I warned you, I warned you there'd, be, there'd be bipartisan here. The law corrupt chant, I thought, was a, a terrible idea, no matter how justified. Actually, I think it was pretty well justified. I was horrified by the, the Clinton campaign, the Clinton uh, Foundation shenanigans, the, the email, the use of the FBI, and so forth. But if you, if you lose an election in the US and then the justice system goes after you, think what a disaster that is. Then you can't afford to lose an election. What happens if you can't afford, if, if you know that the justice system will go after you if you lose an election and only by staying in power can you keep that from happening? That's where Pakistan is. When they lose an election, they lose their business, they lose their freedom, they lose their, their family loses their, their, their businesses, they often go to jail, they sometimes get executed. What do you do? You make darn sure not to lose the election. You use every, you break every norm, you use every, every part of power to make sure not to use the election. And, and I fear President Trump, now, do you think Elizabeth Warren is gonna be so kind? In this case, that nobody pursued Hillary Clinton, no matter how justifiable it was. Do you think President Elizabeth Warren is gonna be so kind? Do you think if President Trump loses the next election, there won't be continuing investigations into his finances and whatever else he did? No, it's gonna go on for years. They're gonna to try to ruin him and he better make darn sure not to lose the election. I'm not that worried about the Republic this time because it, it seems the, the machinery of Washington is, is well in hands of people who dislike the president and will stop him. But uh, next time around, don't make so sure that a, a president facing constant judicial persecution after the fact will not do what it takes not to lose that election. You have to be able to, to, to lose an election. Uh, executive restraint. Uh, President Obama, impatient with Congress, went on to the phone and the pen, as you all know, stuff that's winding its way through courts to, to invent new things that weren't in law. Uh, our current president invoked national security for tariffs and, and for um, the border wall. I'm sorry, you don't invoke national security for tariffs and border wall. And as everybody quickly said, oh, well, they know how to use that. President uh, Ocasio-Cortez is gonna declare a national emergency on China and enact the Green New Deal. Norms broken lead to norms broken. Uh, you have to respect the rights of the minority and slowly get major things through in the US. Uh, district courts do not routinely issue national injunctions on policies they don't like, which has been wh what's going on. State attorneys general do not make it their business to persecute the administration. Uh, that's, these are things they can do, but are there norms that they shouldn't do? 
and, and those are those the disappearance of these norms is what's causing the uh, the um, the, the uh, uh, is, is what's causing our, uh, our polarization. The filibuster, that's a classic case of a minority's right to slow things down uh, when it really matters. The norm was you don't obstruct all the, you don't filibuster everything, you don't call yourself the resistance, raise the red flag and filibuster everything. You use this when it's really important to slow things down and in return, that means you can afford to lose an election because you'll have that right at least to slow things down and not let the worst things happen. And you can see what's happening. The, the recently, that's been used more and more by both sides, most recently by Democrats, just filibuster everything. The result is they're gonna lose that minority right, and, and so things will become more and more majoritarian for getting appointments through, uh, administrative appointments, and, and, just, and that means that winning the Senate is gonna become more and more important because the 51% minority can then ram whatever it wants down the throats of the other. So look for more and more polarization there. You, you break norms of winning elections when you can't afford to lose them. Uh, the Supreme Court has descended into madness, the appointments process. And it's interesting to see how long it took. There was a norm. The president, by and large, gets to appoint reasonable people of his or, or someday her uh, a view. Um, you know, first there was Bork, and that left some bad feelings, but then there was Ginsburg and Scalia. The norm reestablished itself, uh, uh, but then uh, Thomas uh, and, and um, uh, Garland, the Democrats are angry about that, and, and most recently Kavanaugh. You see where we're going in, in the complete breakdown of norms there. Well, for one reason why, because so much now is, is decided major issues by 5-4 by majorities. I, I guess the underlying one is don't grab power with, with narrow majorities and shove major things down the throats of the other side. Social Security and Medicare were passed with substantial Republican agreement, uh, at least half. Now, maybe they were bad ideas, but at least they took the time to establish, to get some buy-in. Obamacare, a, a one-person one uh, partisan uh, uh, majority that's much less durable and leads to much more polarization. So why are people acting this way? Uh, here, let me bring some economics to bear. Uh, so I, I have two players here. I'll call them Rachel and David. Ha ha. You get the joke, right? It's what happens from teaching MBAs for 20 years. Uh, they have two choices, uh, play nice, obey norms, or, or go to war. Uh, you know, search in the high school yearbook for something horribly personally destructive. Um, if each plays nice and obeys the norms, they, they split the pie 50-50. So I've got what Rachel gets in red and what David gets in blue. If, if David plays nice and Rachel goes to war, Rachel gets 60. She does better and David gets nothing. Notice the size of the pie is much smaller. Going to war is destructive. Likewise, if, if Rachel plays knife and David, David goes to war, David gets 60 and Rachel gets nothing. And if both of them go to war, the fabric of the republic is torn apart and they both get 10. The size of the pie is very small. Now you can see the danger of this game. What do you do? Given that David's going to play nice, what should Rachel do? Go to war. Gets 10 more. Given that David goes to war, what does Rachel do? Uh, he did it first. Goes to war. 
She gets 10 more than she would given what David did. And likewise for David. The equilibrium, the, the natural thing to do in this game is to end up in the bottom right square, which is horribly destructive. Now, the fact is this game is played over and over again. This is called the, what, where we live is the repeated prisoner's dilemma. Fancy words, but it's a lovely little parable. And the, the, this is the nature of our political game. It's the nature of many games. Uh, but you're playing it over and over again. So the key is, how do you induce cooperation? How do you come to an agreement, I'll play nice if you play nice? Or I'll play nice this time, but you promise to play nice next time when it matters. That's where norms, ethics, reputation, treaties, constitutions, constitutional moments, laws, trust-building exercises in, in, in foreign uh, affairs uh, all come in. Uh, the, the respect of minority rights is we, we, won't, we won't shove it down your throat this time and, and you won't shove it down our throat next time. Uh, the problem is, of course, that, that, uh, uh, that cooperation is breaking down. Now, why is that cooperation breaking down? The, uh, imagine what happens to the game. Now, you've got to remember this one. 50 to 60 was the prime thing. Suppose that going to war... Rather than giving Rachel top row 60, Rachel gets 80 if she goes to war. And David gets minus 20. Um, imagine that the game has become, uh, more, it's become a, a greater payoff for going to war, for breaking the norm. Furthermore, imagine that the game is less and less repeated. That this one time, if we can get this one appointment through, the game will end. This particular policy will be decided for a generation. Or, what I sense in, in Democrats' dreams right now, we can win the presidency and the Congress, and we can pass enough rules uh, on how elections run to keep that majority for a generation. That's real war. Norms break down in real war. One of the biggest norms is no violence. Well, <laughs> that's where, and why, in real war, why do normal people choose to do that? because the payoffs are enormous and because the game ends. You can, you can rub them off the face of the earth and never deal with them again. It stops being a cooperative game where, where you're gonna, you know they're going to take their turn in power. So as I look at it, uh, um, what I see in the structure of our uh, economy, uh, of our politics, is that we have become more and more a winner-take-all um, game. Um, in, in all the ways uh, that we talk, I mean, all my stories are, are about a, a larger winner-take-all game. Um, the administrative agencies uh, have so much power now that control of the administrative agencies lets loose your policy preferences, and there's not much the other side can do about it. Uh, if the Supreme Court is going to rule on, on enormous things, well then, taking over the Supreme Court is, is extraordinarily important, and you can shove your preferences down their throat for a generation. I, for, I actually, I'm very hopeful about the current Supreme Court. I think one of our biggest problems is administrative agencies are taking over, uh, writing rules out of thin air that are not subject to congressional review or, or cost-benefit analysis or anything else, and, and the court, the Supreme Court, Everyone was talking about abortion. That's, that's not the issue. That, that, that's not going to happen. But restraining the ex administrative agencies is the court's 
challenge. But that's a weak argument because the other side understands that and that's why they want to pack the court in their favor. It's going to get more, the more it goes to the court, the more polarized it'll be. And you can't rely on the court forever. Um, in, in the Roosevelt era, the court eventually gave in uh, and, and passed even such things as Wickard v. Filburn is my favorite decision to hate. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, finally gave in and ruled yes, it is illegal for a man to grow wheat on his own land to make his own bread without a federal marketing order for wheat. Well, after 15 years of political pressure, the court will eventually give in. It's better to have this in other places. So uh, what can we do about all this? Um, uh, you know, as lots of people have said, the answer is uh, we, we need to, um, well, one, we need to change the rules of the game. Ideally, we sit down and change the rules of the game so that it is easier to lose an election. So minority rights are protected um, so that it is, is less of a winner-take-all uh, game. Uh, that involves a lot of reform. Administrative agencies, uh, for example, the, uh, the Paul Ryan plan was a, a wonderful, a lot of what was in there was not about what the outcome is going to be of, of administrative uh, law, uh, of regulation, but the process of regulation. Regulations have to be reviewed by Congress. There will be a shot clock. If they don't answer you within six months, you get what you want. Um, you can have judicial review in a real court, not just an administrative kangaroo court. Uh, little things like that go a long way to, to bringing things back. Congress has to stop writing big, vague laws and trusting other people to do it. Uh, and, and you can see some of that uh, happening. Uh, but alas, uh, by and large, uh, I don't see that happening. We're going in the other direction. I had hoped with the last election that, that Republicans, having spent a generation decrying all this sort of stuff, would say, hey, see what can happen? Let's sit down and write the rules of the game to, to, to constrain the imperial presidency, to constrain the agencies who are, who are writing things, to not take everything to the courts. Uh, and, and, and I would hope Democrat, Democrats suddenly waking up to, oh my gosh, someone like this, in their view, could actually win an election. Yeah, let's, let's make the rules of the game so that, so that we're not going to lose this time. Unfortunately, uh, neither happened. Uh, by, uh, e even though Democrats noticed, finally, uh, constitutional limits, limits on executive power, the rights of states, rule of law, all that sort of thing, you would have hoped they would say, yes, let's get back to that. Uh, unfortunately, no. Um, uh, mostly Republicans are saying, oh, there's a phone and a pen. How lovely. And, and you left that for me. Great. I think I'll pick up that phone and the eraser which is great, the deregulation effort has been a wonderful, uh, a wonderful thing, it's why the economy is growing, but President Elizabeth Warren can pick up that and turn it right back over and start writing on it. Um, and so it's not, it's not durable, and the, the stakes in the next election are higher still. Um, Democrats, uh, I, I would have hoped they would have said yes, my gosh, someone like Trump could win elections. We need, to, we need to put those limitations back in. They are going exactly in the other direction. Uh, they are doubling down on their efforts to take control of the administrative state, the, the court, 
and the presidency and then shove everything uh, down our throats. That is really, as I look to, uh, I was going to do a slide or two on uh, the politics, the economic proposals, the wealth tax, the 70% federal income tax, corporate control proposals, the Green New Deal, to which I, I made the slides only last night, and then today's newspaper came in with the, the proposal to pack the Supreme Court and to get rid of the Electoral College. Now, what's all this about? And it's just, this is just, uh, this is catnip for economists to get wonky about what's all wrong with a wealth tax. But that's not what it's about. Let's take the wealth tax, because I think it is the clearest example of what's going on. Forget the economics of it. It's beautiful because they're so upfront about why they want to do it. They don't want to do it to redistribute income from wealthy people to help poor people. They don't want to do it to raise revenue to fund the Green New Deal. They acknowledge there's not that much money you're going to get out of this thing. They want to do it to get rid of rich people. And why do they get why? This is a guillotine tax. It's not a Peter to pay Paul tax. It is get rid of money held by private rich people. And they're upfront about why. To, because they want to limit their political power. This is to, right there in writing, get rid of the political power of, of wealthy people. What they don't say is who gets the political power. Let's see. Do they want Mr. Trump to have the political power? I don't think so. Anyway, this is about what happens when we take over. This is about a transfer of political power to, uh, uh, to the government. And let's be clear, what happens with a wealth tax? Uh, I notice a, a certain distinguished maturity in the audience. So like me, you have met with your estate uh, tax uh, lawyers. What do wealthy people do, especially people with 50 million and up, when faced with a 3% annual tax? You run to your lawyer, to your accountant, uh, to your lobbyist, to your company's lobbyist. You run to Washington to get a special exemption. And it's not that hard. Uh, you structure your, you take your companies private, you structure your affairs in triple share classes, some of which are held, but you start a charitable foundation. Uh, but this all takes law, this all takes, uh, this all takes help from Washington. You run to bow to those in Washington to make sure that there's some special deal by which you keep your money. And in return, you will offer, you will bow and scrape, you will offer your political support to whoever's in power. Uh, uh, not to their causes, you will run your, if they want you to hire certain people or put in solar panels on your, you will do that and you will make sure to stay quieter on the next election. This is about power. And uh, it's even, even more, you know, what is, what is, a, what is it about, uh, you know, packing the Supreme Court, getting rid of the Electoral College? That's clearly about not just the power to run the country, it's about the power to make sure that nobody like Trump ever gets elected again. It's about staying in power, rubbing their noses in it. If you think any of this is going to reduce polarization, <laughs> you're wrong. They're going in the direction of make it an even more winner-take-all game. Uh, on that lovely note, uh, oh, let me, let me do one last thought. What, what can we do? The last thing, if you wanted to stop it, you need some marriage counseling. <laughs> some little, let's cooperate on a few little things and get going. That's what we prescribe for third world countries, you know, who are having a war. Well, uh, you know, have a little, have some trust building exercises. Unfortunately, that has to happen. There's no third party to help us. That has to happen externally. Uh, how will that happen? Only if voters demand it and only if people explain the ideas behind it, and that's what we're for. 
uh, counting on, uh, you know, counting on Washington to live. People understand this in Washington, but just their voters are demanding go to war, not preserve the other republic. I wanted to take a, a quick note. Uh, Colin mentioned we've been doing something, this totally different topic uh, that we in the fellowship have been thinking about, how to improve Hoover, and I want to tell you a little bit about it. Um, we did an analysis a little while ago, motivated by looking around the hallways. Uh, Hoover is a, a wonderful place, but it seemed like we we're getting long in the tooth. And uh, here's a graph I made uh, last year. The top left is, so the core of Hoover is our full-time senior fellows. Uh, people who, whose only job is Hoover and who, who sit around thinking big thoughts uh, at Hoover. And uh, there we are, all 11 of us in the top left, and our median age is 67. Now that was a year ago, so everything moves to the right one year. We all get older at one year per year, sorry to tell you that. Uh, now in the meantime, we did hire McMaster, so uh, that you know, one more under 60 bar comes in. But we haven't hired an academic senior fellow since uh, Neil Ferguson. If you look at larger uh, categories, uh, those who spend more than half of their time at, at Hoover, top right, there's 17 of us with a median age of 67. You could figure out who 88 to 97 is on, on the bar there. We love them. Uh, but like the rest of us, they're getting older at one year per year. The joint fellows, those who, who, are, who are married to a department and date us on the side, uh, there's, there's 24 of those. Uh, they're a little younger, median age 64. And then there's a, a, the adjunct person, people who come visit us. Uh, th their median age is 70. That's actually one place that we're quickly doing something about. It's very easy to bring on people who can visit us for a couple weeks a year, get to know us, and, and hopefully become our pool of new senior fellows. And, and we're doing that fast. Another graph and chart we did to think about this, uh, what happens if we do nothing about this? Uh, now, unfortunately, as people get old, eventually they retire. So the number of uh, full-time in green or full-time equivalent in purple senior fellows will steadily decline over the years uh, until in the year 2050, Amy Ziegart is, uh, is there to turn off the lights. Um, and the average age would slowly rise. Now this is a simulation where I took into account at what age people typically retire and so forth. That's not a, a pleasant situs. It's a wonderful place but as you can see, it, it needs some rejuvenation. And, and we put together all sorts of charts and graphs and Excel spreadsheets and how much it's going to cost and, and so forth. Uh, fortunately, we have uh, a great leadership, uh, both in Tom Gilligan and, and the administrative leadership and Colin and the uh, wonderful development team. And we're all on the same board with this. Uh, there's a strategic plan. And this, whoops, sorry about that. The strategic plan uh, starts with... Um, What's the central thing that makes Hoover great? Well, our fellows. Uh, Hoover scholars are, are uh, that's what makes us different from, from any other think tank. We have the top scholars in the world, and everything builds around them. The research fellows, the visitors, the media, the, the outreach builds around this core. And that's number one on our, on our, our recognition of, of where we belong. And with uh, those of you who've been to these smaller meetings have seen the spreadsheets and so forth, the number one part of the strategic plan is to uh, revitalize senior fellows, uh, bring, bring in new ones, uh, 
get the visiting fellows and research fellows, uh, just wake that up, bring in the young vital people who will be uh, the future senior fellows, and initiate a, a Hoover Fellows program. I call them the Ferguson Fellows, but Neil gets mad at me every time I say that, so don't repeat it, but it was his idea and it's brilliant. Uh, where we will bring in uh, younger scholars and hopefully some of them will mature and become uh, senior fellows. If not, they'll go on and think great things about Hoover in the future. And we've done that. <clears throat> so where are we? This year we went out on the uh, junior market and, and made offers to the top scholars across economics, uh, political science, national security. And, and kind of our jaws dropped when we actually were able to hire four of the absolutely best uh, scholars around. This is great. Uh, but now we have to keep it up. The challenge remains. We haven't hired a, a senior fellow academic since uh, Ferguson. Uh, we need to get that going. And, and that we need to get that at a, young, at a younger age uh, as well. In, in the, you know, I guess you're not allowed to say that in hiring, but we're all friends here. Uh, uh, less uh, less uh, different point of career. <laughs> uh, our current senior fellows, many were hired when they were 35 uh, or 40. Now, uh, at this point, I can see you reaching for your wallets to make sure they're still there, uh, but let me assure you that's not necessarily the plea I would make for you. Um, we, we need your help on this, uh, and not so much in more money, but in, in how we spend our money. When I talk to Tom and I talk to Colin about, hey, there's this wonderful person I want to hire, they say, that's nice, John, do you know how much it costs? We don't have the money. Uh, and in part because uh, so much of we do have the money, but it can't be spent in this direction. So if I would make a a plea to you is allow us to spend the money that you should generously give in the direction of this human capital campaign. And that's tough. Well, let's figure out why it's tough. Modern philanthropy is hard-nosed. And just give us money to hire people is not something that, that rings very well. Uh, but, but let me make the plea to you. If we, if we spend money on outreach and there's no one from whom to reach out left, it's wasted. If we build buildings that have empty offices in them, it's wasted. If we bring in media fellows and media contacts and there's no one for them to talk to, it's wasted. If we bring in students or other programs and there's no one there, it's wasted. We need to rebuild that core. If we hire people who you've heard of, it's too late. We do not want to become a retirement home. You, you need to trust us. We can find the 35 or 40 year olds who are going to make great contributions while they're at Hoover. And not, and not just as a, as a prize for having done something in the past. Um, that's the key need, and, and you can see the process is there. Uh, I think we're going to do great stuff with your help, support, and, and ideas. Okay, thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.